And now, a sorry wrong door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, you hear those sirens, you know what that means. It's the quarantine edition of Strange, Interesting, and Slightly Gamey. Unfortunately, we've had a little bit of the scarlet fever at my house, and, uh, I'm the only one doing the show this week. We do have a little bit of a remote uh, with uh, Frank and Greg. In fact, we have it right now. Introduction. But other than that, as they say, the show must go on, and that's what's going to happen. So sit back, Happy New Year, and here it goes. What's on the show, boys? Hello, everybody. Hey, everybody. We're here uh, broadcasting from a safe distance from the Pestilence Zone. We want to welcome you to the show. We feel very safe from here. (laughs) We've got a lot of stuff waiting for you. We've got... Uh, interview with uh, an eyewitness of the Jersey Devil. We've got a great interview uh, with a wrestler from the Midwest. Stay tuned for that. We also have Jeffrey Combs reading an excerpt from H.P. Lovecraft and, of course, a scholastic book reading and much, much more. So Happy New Year, and uh, let's get the show rolling. Hey, this is Frank. This is Greg. This is Jimmy Sweets. Enjoy the podcast. I'm Neil Sedaka, here to wish you a most happy new year. It's a psych out. See the pleasure lovers who live it like it is, where it's at. Make the scene with the rebels, the hippies who think that flower power rules over everything and everybody. Psych out. Dick Clark presents the hallucinatory world of the flower children as they parade up and down the streets of San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district. Psych out was filmed entirely on location in hippie heaven. See the mind blowers in action. Watch the psychedelic dropouts as they psych out. Psych out. Psych out. You'll listen to the sound of green with the seeds in the strawberry alarm clock. Taste a moment of madness when you experience a psych out. With Susan Strasberg and Dean Stockwell. In psychedelic color from American International. Psych out. Psych out. Goes. 
Well, it's January and we're celebrating the new year again. But here at SISG, we're also celebrating an anniversary. The 109th anniversary to be exact. Because it was in this week of January 16th through the 23rd in 1909 that the largest number of sightings of the New Jersey Devil took place. That week, the creature was seen by over a thousand people and its tracks were found all over South Jersey and Philadelphia. In honor of this anniversary, we have an interview with an eyewitness of a more recent sighting. The interview came from a great audio documentary called 13th Child. So sit back and relax and listen to one man's tale of terror. While many claim to have heard the shrieking cries of what they believe to be the Jersey Devil, Ocean County resident Paul DeLuca experienced a personal encounter that haunts him to this day. He has never come forward until now. So it was a guy's, uh, it was just going to be a guy's weekend. Just, you know, do some fishing, hang out, drink some beers, listen to a ball game, just kick back and relax. That's it, that's... That's all it would be, just just kick back and relax. And uh, we left at 7 o'clock, got there, got there kind of late, and it was dark, so we just started unpacking, setting things up. And uh, it, it was really uh, such a long ride that I had to go to the bathroom really bad, so I wandered off, but not too far, but far enough where I can have some privacy, you know? And um, I've been hunting before. And I did a lot of camp when I was younger, so I'm pretty familiar with the sounds of the woods. So uh, when I get done, I uh, start heading back and, and thought I heard my name being called, but it didn't sound like any of the guys. So I stopped dead in my tracks and I turned around and there was nothing there, nobody there. So maybe I thought it was one of the guys going to the bathroom too, it was close by to me. and. Uh, didn't think nothing much of it, so I replied back, you. No answer. So, I started heading back, and as soon as I faced the camp, as I was heading back, I saw that the, the figures of my three friends, and there was only four of us. So, next thing I thought, maybe they were just calling out my name, looking for me and it's how their voice carried through the woods. So I start heading back, take three steps, and I, uh, I hear my name again, and this time it's, it's, it's right behind me. So I turn around, shine a flashlight, nothing there, nothing on, nothing right, nothing at all. And I, I just, at this point, I, I just had chills all over my body. Couldn't, uh, just couldn't explain it. Just, I had this creepy feeling that I was being watched. And I don't know why, but I had this feeling that I had to shine my flashlight up at the treetops. There was this, this thing looking down right back at me with, with its red eyes. And all I can think of is that I got to get out of here fast. 
and I started running back towards the camp. Tree branches are scratching me, and I was just praying to God that this thing wasn't chasing me. So I got back to camp, blew by everybody, jumped in the truck, and I screamed, let's get the hell out of here. And we just got there now, and all the guys are looking at me confused. And I had tears in my eyes because I couldn't express myself. I couldn't express myself how how serious it was that we had to get out of there. And even though I was I was in the truck, I uh, I just was thinking that they were out there with this thing, and that this thing was going to kill everybody there. And I just wasn't ready for that. When the interview was concluded, cameras continued to roll. The crew began to notice Paul's reaction, growing more and more unsettled the longer they stayed in the woods. Is that where you got the scar? Yeah, run through the, run away from this thing, whatever it was. It's kind of like you have a momentum. Of, of that night, as much as you want to forget it, you still have that. It's, uh, I'll never forget it, you're right, I'll never forget it. Every time I look at the morning, I just, when I wash my face, brush my teeth, I just, I'd get these chills all over my body, it just, I'd see those red eyes. Was it like wrapped around a tree, or how was it? More like a, like a hunched over, kind of like a perched type, it was, it, it was dark, so I really couldn't, you know, I had the flashlight and there was no other light there. And I just, like, like it was kind of like perched, so I'm not sure what exactly what it was. What color? What, when, when you shine a light on? I just, that, that part was dark. That part was dark. All I could just, like, I was just, it, how could I explain it? Like, just captured by his, his, his eyes. Because they were so red, so so deep red just looking at me it, it, now, just, now a lot of a lot of witnesses say that the red it just has natural glowing reds but but could have been just from the, the light going into the retina no you know, no 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 they were they were they were big and they were they were that's it was like a blood bright red it was uh i'll never forget it i i could tell the difference like i said i've been done a lot of camping and a lot of hunting and I've never, ever seen anything like that. Never. What effect did this have on your marriage? I talked to nobody. My wife left me. She, she probably thinks I'm nuts, but I, I just isolated myself from everybody. And I tried to explain to her, you have to believe me. I, you know. And now, now, are you more, I'm, I'm, does she think you're more nuts, or, or could could the could your marriage been dissolved? Not so much of what you saw, but your how you've reacted since, how you've acted since through your isolation. It's probably because of my isolation, because I just if it's dark, I I stay in the house. I, I can't I can't get outside the house. I just I'm scared, petrified. You go out at all anymore? To do whatever work that I could do during the day. That's it. Okay. Now, now after after all these years, why do you finally want to tell your story? 
it's is it a closure or it, it you could say i i want to know what it was it's kind of like a closure but i want to know i know what i experienced no one else can tell me different because everyone's doubting me it's it wasn't a ufo it was there was something there it it just i had it, it, i can't explain it now what's going through your mind knowing everything you've learned you've gone to church you you, you know that the only animals in these woods are deer or rabbits, raccoons. Then you see something like this. You know, how does this totally affect what, what you know to believe and just turn it on its head? Uh, I just know to believe that there is something else out there that is beyond a bear. It's not, it, bears don't go that high in trees. They, you know, it was bigger than an owl. Owls don't have red eyes like that. Like I said, I'm very familiar with the woods, and I there's there's something else out there. Now you don't go in those woods anymore, but you're you're willing to come this far, which is maybe five minutes from where it happened. Are you comfortable? No, not at all. I'm I'm shaking in my pants. I I. Whenever you're done, I'd like to leave. Honey, 
along the shore the ocean breezes And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. The events of 1909 reminded us of a similar story that took place 24 years earlier, but in England. That story I first read during the spring of 1973 in the Scholastic book Strange But True by David Duncan. And ever since then, I view the night with trepidation. The Night Thing What was it that walked through stone walls, jumped over 18-foot haystacks, and stepped across a river two miles wide? Beast, bird, or the devil? To this day, no one knows. But something did what couldn't be done, and it left its footprints in the towns and villages of Devonshire in southern England a century ago. On the night of Thursday, February 8, 1885, snow began to fall over Devonshire a little before 8 o'clock. It fell in uninterrupted silence until nearly midnight. At 6 o'clock in the morning, Henry Pilk, a baker in Topsham, stepped from his house, paused briefly to admire the blanket of snow. Then he noticed a train of footprints across his enclosed yard. Each print was a U-shaped, as if made by a shoe of a pony or a donkey. Henry Pilk frowned. The footprints, or hoof prints, were all in a line one in front of the other. No man or animal walked like that, as if on a tightrope. Henry Pilk was not a curious fellow. He shrugged, went into his bakehouse, and started his day's labors. An hour later, the whole town was abuzz. Others had discovered the hoofprints. Eagerly, they sought to catch a glimpse of the creature responsible. At the start, it was all great fun, but the longer the trackers followed the single line of prints, the stronger grew their sense of uneasiness. Whatever had visited them during the night possessed extraordinary powers. In places, the hoofprints led right up to garden walls of stone as high as 12 feet. The prints stopped at the base and resumed on the other side as though no wall stood in the way. Could the creature have jumped over? Hardly. The depth of the prints in the snow never changed. Neither did their size, which measured four inches by two and a half inches. And without exception, they were spaced eight inches apart. Moreover, the trail never doubled back, though it led up to every house in town. Was the creature marking the occupants? 
While the people of Topshin puzzled nervously, the mystery spread and deepened. As far south as Totnes, the same single trail had been seen in dozens of places. The distance between Topsham and Totnes is about 96 miles on a straight line. The snowstorm had ended at midnight. Six hours later, Henry Pilk discovered the tracks. In six hours, what could have moved fast enough on a wandering zigzag course to reach points 96 miles apart? Nothing known in that day or unearthed in this. Prints were found in cemeteries, atop wagons, on benches and roofs, in woods and marketplaces, and up to and beyond 18-foot-high haystacks. Prints were tracked to the edge of the X River, where it was two miles wide, and picked up again on the opposite bank. A similar crossing was found a few miles to the south. Everywhere the horseshoe prints were the same, four inches by two and a half inches, at intervals of eight inches. Nowhere in the snow was there a sign that the creature had rested. Fun and curiosity gave way to uneasiness. Presently superstition and fear took command. As the snow melted, the tracks blurred. The prints began to resemble a cloven hoof. Who but the devil had a cloven hoof? Who but the devil would peer into the dwellings of God-fearing folk and mark the sinners? Women and children hid in their homes behind barred doors and shutters. The men fetched their dogs. Armed with muskets, pistols, clubs, and pitchforks, they grimly tramped the countryside. Apparently, no one paused to consider how to capture the devil. Once he was cornered, that difficulty never arose. The night prowler, beast, phantom, or devil, passed unseen. Plenty of snow fell in the days that followed, but the tracks never reappeared. For weeks afterward, men went about carrying weapons, and lonely trails were avoided. Clergymen preached about the signs in our midst as warnings from heaven about drinking, swearing, and loose living. The London Times and other newspapers carried many columns about the strange hoofprints. Expert opinion abounded like wild berries. The prints, it was claimed, were made by giant leaping rats, huge rabbits, birds, otters, toads, kangaroos. Richard Owen, a respected naturalist, blamed the badger without ever having seen the prints. None of the explanations fitted the facts. Thousands of hoofprints in a single line, exactly four inches by two and a half inches, exactly eight inches apart, roaming tirelessly in absolute silence, at uncanny speed, over and through every obstacle. The men and women who struggle with the mystery are gone, but the questions linger. Where had the night thing come from? Where was it going? And when would it walk again? I'm Henry Mancini, here to wish you a most happy new year. 
Hey, if you've ever wondered how people got their start in professional wrestling, then we've got a real treat for you today. Uncle Frank has an interview with Steve Atkins, and he tells us the story of the beginnings and the endings of his life in professional wrestling. Today we're lucky enough to have Steve Atkins with us, a man of many talents and many great stories. Today, though, we're limiting our conversation to his career in professional wrestling and maybe a little bit later on his ghost vacations. Okay, so thank you for talking with us. Yes, Frank. Thanks for having me. We got, we got this music in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's very we're, elegant. We're in uh, what we think is a front <laughs> for, the, for a mafia group mm -hmm. at a restaurant because no one is ever here. But Just food, like wrestling, a front for the mafia. But the food is very good. Oh, okay. <laughs> you never know. Um, How did you get into the wrestling? You said well, you were in skateboarding and in, in a, in a skateboarding uh, store and all into that life. Well, I guess it starts with going to the video store with your mom. Um, I would always grab the latest Wrestlemania, the latest monster movie, and then like something like Weird Science or something, you know? So it'd always be like, get one of those, but almost those three aspects, I still think embody my personality, sort of, like kind of physical, kind of the monster world and creatures, and then just the goofy fun. Um, but I've always sort of had those three kind of loves of just goofiness, wrestling, uh, and monsters and creatures and stuff um, but wrestling was one of like from skateboarding it became well this is physical and wrestling's physical but wrestling's like superheroes I always saw it as superheroes it's uh, I can be a superhero I can dress in a cool outfit and do things people can't do and I always like being a good guy I've been a bad guy before too but I like I like being the good guy. It was more fun. How did you f get into it, though? How did you even find out how to get get an in? Um, for so many years, I was the only kid I knew that I had every tape. I had everything from Japan and like old Memphis Lawler stuff and old Texas stuff uh, with like Devon Eriks and stuff. Um, but I would slow mo tapes, and then me and my friends. Like, they all hated it, but I would grab one at a time and throw them on the trampoline and suplex them and drop kick them and put them in holds. And I would pause tapes and, like, grab my brother and, like, how do I put that arm in that? I think that's it. And I'd press play, and I would just go over it and over it. And I remember even trying to mimic how guys walked, you know, like, in, like, <laughs> I'm, like, 10 or 11. But I'm, like, I would watch, like, an entrance, and then I'd try to walk through my living room like Hulk Hogan and... Try to mimic those same movements. Just sort of, I guess it's sort of a talent I have. It's like making fun of doing a fake voice of someone. I can, and that helps me. I teach a lot of wrestling. Um, with, I can watch movements and I can see there's an arm there that needs bent. Like I can sort of see how things move. I guess, and that helps me with teaching people. Cause, let's say they do a shoulder roll wrong. I'll go, oh, you. You rolled here, but you tucked this way. You moved this leg wrong. He's led off that foot. I can see the nuances and movement, I guess. Um, How did you, did you know someone? Or did you just walk into some wrestling? It got, by the time I was 18, it got to where me and my best friend Josh, we would, uh, if we were anywhere, it turned into a wrestling match. We'd start hitting each other, and we would drop kick each other on the sidewalk, and, um, this is a story I haven't told this in a long time. We were uh, both 18. We were working at a bar as barbacks slash bouncers. Um, 
And every night, like, as we take the garbage out, we'd start a match and we'd goof off. Uh, and I remember one night, we kind of drew a little crowd. Uh, people were watching and clapping for us. Uh, he had a really crappy car, so I would always, like, slam him on the hood <laughs> and I'd get up on it and I'd drop an elbow on it. Um, and I remember a guy said, talk to my friend Dan. Uh, I don't even think it was cell phones. He was like, I'm going to call my friend Dan and tell him to call you. Uh, he's a wrestling teacher and I was like what like people are wrestling teachers um, I didn't expect that uh, but uh, yeah this guy called me and said I heard you put on a pretty good show and back behind Zydeco and we were like uh, I guess um, and uh, I called him and he said yeah I got a wrestling school it's like a thousand dollars for once you train you're one of my guys um, I didn't even know there were shows, I guess. Um, but yeah, called so, him up. so you started. What now? Did he, he he went through his school, and you become a teacher with him right away, um, or or did you go into doing wrestling at a, an event? Not to down Mad Dog, which he's awesome. Mad Dog Dan Sawyer, the guy who trained me, broke me in, as we say it. Um, uh, he showed me little nuances, like when you shoot someone off the ropes, you always grab left hand to left hand, or when you grab a headlock it's always on this side you know like little things but most of it I I did almost everything first try and I've always said like I learned how to skateboard and I felt like I got in the ring and was able to wrestle like but did he get you matches or how did you start doing that um I think within six months he had me I was in a Mexican hood and he had me <laughs> took me to uh, one of the Armstrong brothers uh, like Bo oh, nice. Bob and yeah. Steven Scott Armstrong they had a they had a show and he took me down there and he's like if it works I'll get you a match and I remember uh, they had some guy who had been wrestling a few years and I'm like oh yeah you can wrestle Steve I was the lethal luchador was my name <laughs> and then right I remember right before the match uh, Dan like he goes you're better than that guy just so you know like, don't go out there depending on him. Uh, I remember going out there, like, and the guy was really bad. He didn't know anything. And I kind of, um, even though wrestling's fake, as everyone says, um, the better athlete and more knowledgeable of holds guy yeah. will come out on top, no matter how fake our ending is. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I remember going out there and wrestling rings around him and just uh, blowing him up means running out all his wind uh, yeah just like my first match I kind of and then who was supposed to win did he win or you win uh, I think he won um, but I think it was just like I <laughs> tied him in a knot and then beat him up for 10 minutes and then laid on your back and, and then like I think I let him put me in the sharpshooter which he put on wrong I think um, yeah and what's the sharpshooter sharpshooter is Bret Hart's finisher when you step between cross the legs hook it and then step oh, and over. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, guess I didn't know what the name that. of that was. Yeah, it's the sharpshooter. So then, then you started just doing more matches. I, I quickly, um, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm gonna be the uh, Shawn Michaels. I'm gonna be The Rock. I'm gonna be Stone Cold. Um, I'm gonna join. A, I think the day I started his wrestling school, I joined a gym. I ordered boots. I wanted professional tights. I started growing my hair long because I wanted to have long hair. I like got real over focused. Um, and my headphones was wrestlers' entrance musics. Uh, when I got home on TV, it was videos. If I played a video game, it was a wrestling video game. 
that was it. Like, that's all I did. Like, probably for three or four years, I was, like, crazy. Um, I think I went from, like, 130 to 170. Just, oh, wow. Just working out, like, hard as I could. Uh, and all this time, are you doing matches? All this time, I'm doing matches. And, and where I'm, were they held at this point? Because what um, state was this in? This is first? in Alabama. I'm okay. still in Alabama. Um, I quickly became like the biggest fish in the little pond uh people started hearing about me and like i was kind of kind of i not arrogant because if you watch sean michaels is my favorite wrestler uh he always talks about it takes a little arrogance and a little attitude to succeed because that's what you have to have and so you have to really believe you're great and almost want to be the best and to a point believe you're the best to kind of shine above everybody um and uh yeah i definitely had that attitude i guess and um yeah i would probably do three or four matches a week even which is unheard of now almost uh i had a place in hansville ran by a guy named will owens and i had a place gcw which was mad dog's place um and a couple others like little high school kids would run shows in bars their dads owned and stuff but I would have buddies. I would take like my buddy, like Mason Fury was his name. I would take him, and we would do all those that week. And I would be like, I just watched all these matches. I want to try everything I just saw. But I would have like hour-long matches, which is impossible, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I was like really a wrestling machine at that point. Um, yeah, I was like the man in Alabama, I guess. Now, did you start traveling eventually um, to other places? I kind of stayed in Alabama a lot. Uh, I'd go to Atlanta a little bit, and but it seemed like... I guess I don't even remember asking for money back then either. I don't think I even cared about the money. Or I knew it would be bad, so I didn't try to get it. Um, um, the main thing that happened is uh, someone had mentioned WWF, WWE... Um, had a, a farm league, had a developmental territory that uh, that's where they send their guys before they go on TV. And I think guys were just starting to show up on TV from there. And I was like, I went on their website and I saw they had a beginner's school. I was like, well, if I go there, join that beginner's school, um, I'll be in the building, you know? I'll be at least where big money, big wrestling's eye will be. At least yeah, focused exactly. on the building I'm in. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I went up, joined the beginner's class, kind of pretended I'd never wrestled. I was about five years in. And, uh, yeah, same, just like the first match, just tied everybody in knots and ran circles around them and uh, quickly was told, hey, move up here, move to Louisville. Um, I think within a month I was in the contract class, so I was training alongside of, WWE contracted guys after about five years in. That's killer. So it was like uh, guys like Big Show and uh, John Cena and Randy Orton and like everyone who's kind of big now was kind of starting off then and getting sent down there to rehab or something. Um, and yeah, I was I was doing the same drills with these famous people and these. Uh, yeah, anybody. Like, if Billy Gunn got hurt, they sent him down. I think The Rock even came through. Undertaker wow. came through. Like, it came to a point that everybody would come through when they would get hurt, right before they came back to TV, or they would sign old WCW guys, and they would send them there to get them ready. Um, 
Yeah, everybody was there. It was so good. And it was like, I went from being this big fish in a little pond, and I move up there, and I'm like the shortest guy in the room, and the smallest guy in the room, and I guess, like I said, I did everything on every like tape from Japan or Mexico I could find, and uh, up there, it was all about like working a headlock for 15 minutes, old Memphis style. So, oh, yeah. So I was like, now I can't do backflips and twisty flips and all my Mexican moves. So I almost had to learn... I swallowed my pride and said, I'm going to learn this old school stuff and kind of hide my my lucha Mexican moves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, really quick even, I think my first OVW match, which is a place I was pretty much till the end. I was there. Yeah, I kind of just stayed Alabama and then went OVW and... Stayed there so long because I was on that cusp for so long, you know. Uh, my first one was with Mark Henry, if you know who he is. He's world's strongest man. He's still on WB TV now. Um, I wrestled him. He was really cool. He really liked me. So these are all matches, but now in Memphis. Uh, now I'm in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, I'm sorry. Louisville, Louisville Kentucky. Kentucky. Memphis is Lawler's old territory, which yeah. then became Louisville, I think, a little bit. Because uh, he had a little developmental deal, I think. But then he switched it to OBW, where yeah. Danny Davis ran it. And how many years now did you wrestle up there? Um, I stayed there from 2002 till, I guess, when I switched careers in 2008. I pretty much was there. Now, you were t you talk uh, about where you were training other, yeah. other wrestlers, too, now. Yeah. And when did that start? Um, a, a year into it? A couple years? Or was it towards the well, end of the, that? Was when I was back at Mad Dogs in Alabama, I kind of took over his school, and I started training all his guys. Okay. And then when I went to Louisville, I made buddies with my beginner class guys, but then I got moved quickly up to the advanced contract class or whatever. And then uh, I sort of would always go back to that class until uh, I think me and a guy named Tank Tolan ended up just running that class. And these are classes of 50 people, you know? Um, and what's funny is I never knew anybody's names, and I would, like, give them nicknames, you know? Like, <laughs> hey, you, yellow pants, come on. Uh, you, uh, weird ears, get in. So and you were training all these guys. I was training a lot of guys, making up names for them, and then they would use the names I made up for them, like, in their matches later. I was like, <laughs> I called you super gloves because you wore workout gloves for no reason. Uh, I called you Sonic because you were short wearing blue clothes, and you named yourself Sonic. But uh, So a lot of the guys out there now you've trained. There's a lot of guys up there now that I remember like having hands with them, um, like first matches. Like Cliff Compton, I remember he first came to OVW, and um, I was supposed to like beat him up real quick because they were debuting a guy called the Boogeyman. Uh, but instead, I was like, well, let's just do a back and forth real quick to bring you up to my level. Um, a lot of guys like they would take guys that were already wrestling um, and send them there, and to make them their TV style. I guess I'm almost most known for my feud with CM Punk, which is, uh, <laughs> he's the most famous friend of mine. I almost think if you look up me, you'll get pictures of him uh, a little more, because <laughs> he became so famous and controversial. Um, but you were his nemesis. I was kind of like, it's almost like, when I think when I first met him, like he had a Batman shirt on, I had a Superman shirt on. And I was like, that guy doesn't know comics. And he was glaring at me almost the same way, like, that guy doesn't know comics. 
and we almost didn't like each other. Um, that um, works out perfect. Until we wrestled. Um, and I remember we wrestled uh, the day after I got a contract. I got my, finally got my WWE contract. Um, and I remember like, this is it. In my head, it's like, this is it. It's a matter of time. I'm going to be a millionaire. Kids <laughs> are going to buy my toys. Like, I've got it. Like, uh, I'm a little kid from Alabama that made it to the NBA. You know, like, I got it. Um, um, I remember the next day, I'd never wrestled punk. And Punk was kind of like a big deal coming off uh, the independence, sort of. He was already sort of famous when they signed him. Um, and it was like, he was the world champion and I was the TV champion. And I get signed and they're like, all right, first day in, you're wrestling the champ. And I'm like, oh man. <laughs> I was like, I don't like this guy. I don't think he likes me. He's kind of a jerk. He's all covered in tattoos. He's called Punk because he smells for a reason, you know. Um, he actually ended up being my best friend because we went out. And we didn't talk, and I guess to give away secrets, um, you talk out a lot. Um, like, yeah, figure out the censure. Yeah, it's because you want to tell the story. Yeah. And you want to get the best reaction at the end of the match. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's like, well, if I'm going to do that kick, uh, you got to catch my kick twice and me not get it. I got to go for it, and you got to roll out a couple times, and I got to almost hit it, and then you poke me in the eye, you know, or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, when guys are really good and you're trained right, uh, you don't talk. And I remember, like, neither of us talked. I was like, oh, we're just going to go out and go. So you worked it out just on the fly. We didn't work out. And that's my favorite style because... That's you like jazz. You're just playing off each other. When you don't know what's going on, um, I always tell my students now that, like, when they pre-plan it, their punches are thrown. I'm throwing one, two, he's ducking. My elbow, and they're like, they look scripted, as opposed to if you don't know, if you're given a real punch, you don't know, like, uh, block this one, <laughs> you know, like, you, yeah, you, you put more body language into it, and it looks more real, kind of, because you're not, it's, it's half real. you're not remembering <laughs> your dance, you're just doing it, sort of. But I remember me and him went out there, and uh, yeah, no talking, just wrestled, and it was like. In the ring, we became best friends almost. Like, wow, you're good. This is so fun. I'm pulling off moves that I have to, like, explain to people and take forever. That, yeah. Um, yeah that's awesome. And so I was almost, yeah, I'm almost famous for being his friend. Does uh, <laughs> that make and sense? And his enemy in the ring. Yeah. Um, and then it was like, we were, we were both good guys, too. So oh, that's good. The second we did that, uh, Al Snow, which was kind of running TV, was like, Man, you guys are good. That was awesome. Like, I'm putting that on TV next week. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you. We got our hummus and pita bread right now. Yeah. Now, so, you said you had to train all the pretty girls, too. You got the. Yes. <laughs> it was all. Who were some of those that you trained? Um, like, um, Barbie and her name's Kelly Kelly, I think, and Victoria and Victoria Crawford, not Victoria. The other Victoria, uh, Melena Roca. Was um, this? Was this? You said you were because you were shorter. Because I was little, and WWE doesn't look for wrestling girls. They they go straight into. Uh, they go to Hawaiian Tropic and hire the ten winners. Okay, uh, and then they have to learn to and wrestle. They send them up, and ah, yeah, they yeah. offer them. Yeah, they <laughs> offer them uh, a tryout. 
Um, and yeah, so I would get like twice a year, I'd get a bunch of supermodels, and uh, I would have to try to get them to roll or try to get them to do moves. Um, and uh, and I guess I was I was a trusted good guy, so I didn't yeah I didn't flirt with them or anything too bad. Um, but uh, yeah, it was really fun. And girls uh, liked the acrobatic stuff, so I would teach them on the spot train them, teach them a lot of little stuff. Um, I mean, I'm sure they, my job was to teach them a lot of basics and teach them how to move before they go on to like Al Snow or something. Yeah, or so they don't come in cold. Or... Yeah, but I would get a lot of them cold and just uh, have to show them the basics, which was fun. And then when they would have girls practice, I would always have to be there. for. I'm the only one small enough for them to slam and suplex and uh, you don't want too dainty models hurting each other so so what's um, you might have to you might have to pause we'll pause and we'll, we'll do it in your car afterwards yeah that's fine all right here we go yeah we're uh, we got interrupted but with our food <laughs> and so we're back in the vehicle now yes and i'm still here talking with steve adkins and we were uh talking about you training people in wrestling and then what well first of all you got a good story. I know you got plenty of them, but on yeah. the spot, um, what's a one thing that's a good example of all the shenanigans that went on? Um, like more like pranks or more like tell a couple of whatever. It was just like almost like in, in any business, you have your just core group of friends traveling, which is almost what I remember more than anything is just me and all my buddies just driving around, goofing off uh, all the time. Like in cars and stuff. Were there rivalries? How are the they had fake rivalries? How do they decide that? And did they change like a soap opera where sometimes you're the good um, guy and sometimes you're the bad guy? Well, that's what happened with uh, back to me and Punk. Um, that uh, we had that one good match, so they go, let's build a whole story with them. So they put us one on one, went to a draw, and then we became a tag team and wrestled a bunch of guys as a team. Because even the story sort of became real. Our characters wrestled each other so good, we our characters became friends as we really became friends. And then friends. you became a team against yeah. other people? And then we became a team, and then we won the OVW tag belts, and then we lost them to Deuce and Domino, which were these 50s greasers. Uh, and then the week we were getting them back, like, Punk turned on me. And so then... <laughs> It became, we were feuding, you know what I mean? So Who decides on the storylines, or does the crowd decide? Well, there's usually a, a writer. Um, Paul Heyman and Jim Cornette were the main OVW writers. Um, but yeah, they would see, it's almost like you see what's working. And even we felt that's where it was going. Like, okay, now we're a team, we need to turn, uh, and then ultimately we need to... Re be friends, you know, and that's kind of <laughs> against the common enemy, yeah. And that's kind of how it went. Um, and it was just almost like, let's see how many different ways can we keep these two guys in the ring putting on these good and keeping it fresh and the yeah. audience still um, interested. And then, uh, it, it almost becomes this uh secret card in your in your deck that oh, attendances are low, let's promise Seth versus Punk next week, like, yeah, so that way, uh. And now do you have to create a fight where somehow you do something to make each other mad or they just suddenly announce 
They turned on. I mean, is the story? Oh, it, it, it's um, the story has to take place before the audience. Yeah, it's, or they... it's we did um, the way we turned on each other is I would almost say some of the best stuff I've been a part of. Um, I think the first tag match we were the champions, and uh, I think it was like the heat is when they isolate one of the tag team, and they're really beating him up, really beating him up. And then once he gets that tag, if you've seen, once the one guy tags, he comes in and yeah. he's beating up everybody. Um, I remember we did a long heat on Punk, like a really long heat. And then I got the hot tag, as it's called. I came in and I was really beating him up. One of the guys was about to hit a finisher on me. And I remember my character pushed him away and tags Punk, but then gets grabbed and we fight to the floor. And Punk's like so tired already <laughs> that he can't and join And he comes in. in and he tries his move, and the guy goes behind him and he pins him, and we lost the tag belts. And it was like, and then we did a backstage vignette where it's like, why'd you tag me in? Are we not partners? Are we not friends? And I'm like, yeah, we're. we're I didn't know you were that hurt. Uh, I wouldn't have tagged you in. I was about to take Deuces Wild, which was Deuces Finish. It's about to take Deuces Wild. I had to get out. Got out. Sorry, I didn't know you were that hurt. I was like, we're the better team. We'll get our belts back tonight. Everything will be fine. And in the vignette, there's a moment that I, I like say to him, like, I think our music's playing. And I'm like, cool, we're going to win these belts back. He's like, do you know what you have to do? He's like, I know what I have to do. And he looks at the camera like, <laughs> mean. And uh, that's what he's going to turn on you. And uh, in that match, we played it very different. I took the heat. I took this long heat, tag him. He comes in, same, almost the opposite. He's beating him up. He's beating him up. He picks the guy up for his finisher, I think, and he puts him down. And I remember it's some of the best camera work that, like, in the foreground of the shot, I'm crawling up back to him on the apron, selling so hard. And then he, like, turns to look at me, and I don't even see him because I'm in the foreground. He's in the background. And just He looks at me. And he comes over and tags me. And I'm just like, <laughs> no. And as I'm like, what are you doing? The bad guys pull me in. And he like stays in the ring and watches them finish. Humble you? Yeah. Uh, and then they kept the tag belts. But nice. it was like, man. And then the next week, like as he starts talking, I just run out and just take him down. It's like, <laughs> so it shows that we're, and the matches will be different. When we're good on good the matches will be a lot of wrestling, a lot of holds and stuff. But once once you hate him, you know, I'm not going to hold a little wrist lock on a guy I want to choke. You yeah, know? then it's more street fighting. Yeah, it became real brutal and real tough. Now, uh, how much, I mean, how many people, how do you get hurt, let's say, in this stuff? You know, um, I know it's a stunt show, but... It's uh, just like anything. You do a flip and land on your knee and it goes the wrong way. Um, I did... So many stupid things. I would always jump out of the ring, the floor, and I did every backflip, front flip, twisty flip uh, I could do. Um, luckily, I didn't get a lot of injuries. I mean, I have a, a bad meniscus tear, and um, if you know your skill set, I guess, you know your limits. Um, I felt like mine were pretty far, uh, but uh, yeah, you just got to be safe. Now, how did you end up getting out of the wrestling business? What, what did you get tired of it? Did you was it a matter of getting too hurt? Or? Well, it. Um, I was always trying to find. Uh, I guess you know I started in like '96 and around like 2006. I guess I was still like, all right, let's find that confidence. Sort of like I was talking about that 
I thought I was stone cold in Alabama. I was like, um, I gotta be. Let's get that confidence back. Um, let's, you know, almost trying to get a second win. I was always trying to get a second win, uh, and I never really could. I started losing like my effort. I guess I started like kind of getting tired. Uh, not of wrestling. Got tired of not being moved up to TV. Kind of. Like, what's the point? And then I would always be like, all right, let's get some confidence. Let's work out extra hard. Let's... And every time I would start to get a little bit, you know, something would knock me down. Or they would take a guy to TV that, I'm better than him. I, oh, crap, I'm better than him. Uh, I helped train him, and uh, he's on TV. That's weird. Um, and my friends were starting to become millionaires and move out of Louisville and buy houses and... I'm just like, man, I'm still running beginner's class for minimum wrestling pay. Uh, just kind of got frustrating. Um, and then uh, they clean house all the time. Um, I just got fired one day. Just, huh. Like, uh, I was always told, like, hey, better start getting ready. Better turn it up. We're going to put you on right after WrestleMania. We're going to put you, we're going to debut you. Oh, uh, it's not going to happen WrestleMania. It's going to happen SummerSlam. So I kind of kept getting told, SummerSlam's in the summer, WrestleMania is kind of the opposite. I kept always getting told, we're about to debut you. Turn it up. And I just kind of like started, I don't even, I can't even turn it up. Like, I've given you all I got. There's nothing left to give. Uh, and once I got fired, um, it was almost, I had friends that were, you know, in the office area, and they were like, it was just a quick thing. They said your name. Is this guy fired? No? All right, fired. Like, it was like a one-second decision, uh, which just almost, like, bothers me. That, like, they didn't even know who they were firing. Um, I'd been on their television show for, like, ten years almost. and they, Or probably seven years, not ten. I've been wrestling about ten at that time. Uh, but I was wrestling for their developmental TV show, and no one knew who I was. The writers would come down, and we'd be told in meetings, we watch the TV show every week. What's your name? I've been your main event for the last, like, seven years. What are you talking about? How do you not know my name? Oh, uh, nice to meet you. Like, um, it's sort of like wrestling became a job, and then the second I didn't have to work, I didn't want to work. Oh, well, Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, that's the point. I, it, it had embodied so much of my life. Uh, yeah, going back to, like I said, headphones were wrestling music, movies were wrestling movies, video games were wrestling video games. Like, I didn't have any of that left. I didn't have any wrestling videos anymore. I didn't play any wrestling games. Didn't watch the show anymore. Um, because it filled up my life so much. Uh, yeah, and once I got fired, it was... I was so mad that I felt relieved, almost. It was weird. I was like, oh, I don't have to wrestle. I was so <laughs> happy. I was like, I don't have to wrestle anymore. Um, and so how did you change to the effects business? Um, after I got fired, I didn't know what else to do. Um, I tried to kind of, I tried to hold on for a little bit, um, doing little shows and stuff. And even after I got fired, I started... I felt like my matches were getting worse. I was trying less. I couldn't make myself put in that effort. Um, 
Yeah, you got burned out. I was so burned out, and I was so like, this is—I don't know how to do anything else. This is all I wanted as a kid. If I don't do this, is there any point? Like, what do I do? Um, I mean, I don't drink or do drugs or have any depression, not, no suicide or nothing. But it was like, what's the point of life? I, all I've known is wrestling, you know, so long. Um, and I remember I had this show. And I was packing my bag, and I was almost in tears. I was like, oh. Like, just the thought of being in a locker room and talking out of finish and figuring out what I'm going to do and getting the energy to look happy in front of the crowd. I, don't, I was so sad. I didn't want to do that. And I remember, like, just sort of another voice in my head said, you don't. You don't have to. I was like, oh, I guess I don't have to. And I called the promoter, and I'm like, I think I've quit wrestling. And he's like, oh, you're not coming tonight? I'm like, no, I think, I think I'm done. He's like, do you want to do, like, a retirement feud with someone? Because if you're in wrestling, you know, a lot of guys do these feuds where they retire. So everyone will come out and clap for oh, them yeah. and say good things about them. And then they're back a week later, you know. Just, it's almost, make me the main event again by making me retire. Um, I was like, no, no retirement. I'm just going to gonna disappear <laughs> like and uh I was so happy that I quit I felt relieved and I remember I walked this is all in one night I walk out of my bedroom where my bag is that I think I threw it in the dumpster or something I went back and got it but I threw my bag in the dumpster and I'm just I go in my living room I'm like all right new life what do I do and on my walls are Freddie Jason Leatherface Freddy toys. There's a chainsaw above my TV. There's a Freddy glove, Freddy claws, uh, all monster stuff, all horror. My whole living room is horror themed, and I'm like horror. That's what I want. This is. I care about this more than I care about wrestling. Go right to my computer. I typed in special effects, uh, I, and I was like in my head, I was like, I think it's Tom Savini does special effects seminars or something. I put in Tom Savini Special Effects, and Tom Savini Special Effects School came up. And I was like, how much is it? And it was like, that's creepily. Oh, that's almost exactly how much I have saved from wrestling. Um, deep breath, account number, school. And that's how you do it, right on. I start in two weeks. <laughs> it that's was great. like, I just, just do it. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I think I even started packing that. Nice. And I'm just like, I'm going to go. Uh, well, speaking of that, we got to go. <laughs> oh, we, yeah. We're going to be in trouble. But uh, I want to get back another time yeah. and talk about your ghost hunting. Because that's yes. the second part. Your second love. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, thank you very much for talking with yes. me. Yes. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll get back to you later. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye. All right. We had to come back for an extra... Uh, supplemental. <laughs> supplemental thing. Because I heard long. some more stories. Um, now you were talking about how you the, how you get blood in the ring and you cut yourself. Blood in the ring. Um, contrary to popular belief, it is if you see blood, it's real blood. Um, yeah, usually it's from a nose or something, so you know that's real. But uh, and I'm sneezing, so I sound weird. Um, um, yeah, you take a you take a razor blade, like a shaving razor, and you you cut just the blade off. And then usually you cut that in half. So you have this little like quarter inch uh, little bit of razor blade. And then you even 
like wrist tape, you tape up the little bottom of that. So you've got this little tiny, like, just the uh, edge. almost like an exacto, a little baby exacto. Uh, and then you tape your wrist. Well, I taped my wrist. You can put it different places. And then you lay it kind of in there, and then you wrap it a couple more times. Or you'll uh, put a plug on it and hand it to the referee and tell the referee to hand it to you. Um, at a certain point. And then you would actually cut your own forehead. Um, it's You're supposed to follow the wrinkle, but I didn't follow the wrinkle as good. Uh, so you I only did two it, scars. Um, it was when I was the last match I was going to ever have in Alabama. No, I was wrestling Mad Dog, my trainer I talked about. Um, I was wrestling Mad Dog, and everybody knew I had already moved my stuff, actually, and I was, this was my last show. Uh, yeah, and it was like, this is a big deal. And Mad Dog loved to bleed. Um, and he was like, why don't we uh, get you color on this one? Why don't we give some color? Uh, <laughs> that was the code. Yeah, and so I was like, okay. Um, in my head, I was like, well, I'm about to be famous, so I better do it once so I know how to do it when I have to do it against, you know, Stone Cold or something. Uh, so I think the spot was he had a, his name's Mad Dog. He had a dog collar. Um, we bumped the ref, which means we knocked the ref out. Uh, and then I go to give him my finisher, maybe, and he uh, grabs the dog collar and punches me, and it knocks me out, and I roll to the floor. And when I'm on the floor, I gave a... The, he had told me to push till you feel it pop. <laughs> which is really gross. Because, yeah, you just sort of... You push, and then you're not through. And it's like making yourself push hard. And then you feel it... It feels like like sliding scissors across the leather. It sort of, you feel it... It sounds like a zipper in your head. And then the blood starts flowing. And then you're not sure if you're bleeding, which is weird because you're already sweating so much. Oh, you can't tell. Um, Yeah, and you already feel wet. Like, I had really long hair. Uh, My hair was wet already. I felt wet already, but... uh, And then you said that's a common thing, that every time there's blood on the face, it's not a broken nose or something. Yeah, usually. It's them cutting their head. And um, some guy you said you traveled with, had so cut yeah, himself got, so many times. Guys and, like like Dusty Rhodes and uh, Sabu and uh, New Jack and who was the guy that you stick dimes um, in while he was? I sleeping? remember one time we were uh, traveling with Cody and his dad Dusty, uh, which Dusty's a legend. Um, but Cody kept sneaking back and putting dimes in the the scar tissue. It was so big. It was so creased. And it, who who did he do it to? Uh, Dusty Rhodes, uh-huh. which is. Oh, world famous, Dusty Rhodes. So he's uh, sitting back there sleeping with these dimes sticking in his Yeah, head. he's put two little dimes in his and what did you say he said when he, he woke I up? I think he woke up. He's like, I made 20 cents on that nap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess Cody was his, his son, and he'd done it a lot. Um, so it was, it was pretty hilarious. But yeah, I, yeah, you can't cut and look at a mirror, so you don't know. Yeah, which way you're doing. Um, and if they do it enough times, oh my gosh, your whole forehead would look like and a I had, uh, my Mad Dog had told me, you know, take take headache medicine all day. And so I took Goody's headache powder all day. To so, thin your blood? Yeah. Oh, so when I, when I got it... Oh, it must have been uh, spurting I, everywhere. It went... Uh, it, it covered my, my whole body, like to my knees. <laughs> like I was... Well, that was the I best was, thing to go I out on. I was red. Uh, yeah. Um, it's pretty gross. Now, the uh, other thing you were talking about is how you train... You talked about yourself to develop a persona... And oh, yeah, uh, like sort of a walk when you come in. I might have already talked about the 
uh, WWE hiring the Hawaiian Tropic Girls. Yeah. Did I mention that already? You said you had to train them to have a more sexy walk and to get into the ring more femininely, more sexy. Um, These girls would, uh, I don't know, they're for supermodels sometimes. They wouldn't have any, they don't know how to, they can stand for a picture, but they don't know how to walk or getting into a ring, they would crawl into the ring like a little fat kindergartner, sort of, like kind of like dumpily crawl under the bottom rope and I'm like you have to um, a bit of as, as the girl you have to pay guys are paying to see the the hotness so you know and I would <laughs> I would like teach them how to like swing one leg on the apron and I would sort of be making it up as I go but I would just think of other entrances I'd seen you know swing one leg on the apron or or pull the rope or maybe even bite the rope or something and I would make these girls do these dumb things. And this uh, uh, Melina. The, yeah, she's the one. That... Um, I, Eminem was the big tag team that she debuted on TV with uh, Matthews, Nitro, and Melina. Um, and I think uh, she would always do the splits. Um, was one of her character's things. Uh, and one day I was like, why don't you just do that in your entrance? And I was showing her how she should stick one leg up and rub it and then... Hop the other leg up so she's doing a complete split on right top on the, of the rope, or? right on the ring apron. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? So like on holding onto the bottom rope in a split, and then she would like arch under, uh, and then her tag team she, as she would stand up, they would slide between her legs into the <laughs> ring, like they were checking it out. Like yeah. Um, and you said that became her. Uh... Yeah, that was her even on TV. She always did the the big splits entrance, and uh, I've heard a couple interviews where she says yeah. That Skyfire came up with that entrance for me, so <laughs> thanks, Melina. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> Very good. Um, and when the, when you were both in Alabama and then when you went up to the next uh, level, you were on on the regional television there. I was in uh, uh, in Alabama. There wasn't really TV, um, but in Louisville there was OVW, which was. Kind of as far as Chicago and probably down as Nashville and over oh, as that's quite a Cincinnati. Big but it was the Ohio Valley, even though it was in Louisville, it was yeah. called that whole Ohio Valley yeah, okay. kind of got the show. And almost in the um, East Coast and South. Yeah, I was on that from probably 2002 to 2006. Yeah. And what were the two leagues or were there two different? Or what well, do you that's call it. it. Um, the Farm League was OVW, which is okay. that show. And then. WWE, which is the big time. Uh, that's as big as it gets. And I never really... I'd done a few, uh, like, Monday night. I did, like, a Master Lock challenge. Uh, I did, like, a Kurt Angle uh, beat the clock challenge, um, which is usually local guys, but they would bring up contracted guys that are good enough but not on TV to do those. Uh, I never got to the big time. Yeah. I did some... But you were on TV. You just weren't on national. Yeah, I wasn't on the big, yeah. the big, big, big show, but I was on... Uh, Kind of a, yeah, in Louisville, I was like a local celebrity, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, well, and as far north and south. But too, I did so. a lot of uh, what they call dark matches, which is before uh, the show comes on, the crowd's still coming in, they'll have three or four matches, which are matches to try out new guys in the big arena, and you still walk down the same entrance and everything. And oh, you're cool. usually you're wrestling uh, a guy that's already on TV, but before the show. Yeah, okay. so maybe he doesn't have a storyline going on. So let's put him against you. You're an unknown, and that'll kind of get the crowd going. Um, okay. And they used me for a bunch of those because I was exciting, sort of. Uh, get the crowd warmed up. 
Yeah, I had good moves, so no matter what, no matter who my famous person I wrestled was, I did cheer for me. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty fun. All that stuff. All right, sir. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for the supplement. Yes. Had Captain's get log. Supplement. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and and uh, thank you very much. Thank you. And and we have to come back and talk about your other interests. Yes. Like, like the ghost hunting. Ghost hunting, traveling. Uh, what else is there? I used to skateboard. <laughs> I got dogs. The many lives. Babies to come. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, bye.
don't like to think about how much I drink. It's a habit that's out of control. Oh yeah, hope I never get dry. Before you get. Hope I never get dry now. Before you get. I hope I never get dry before I get old. Hey, how you doing? This is your reindeer, Frankie Benelli. And Santa, Paul Giordino. From Quiet Riot. Wishing you Happy New Year! By the way, don't drink too much and get drunk and drive. And now we have The Boxer, an excerpt from H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West, Reanimator, read by the great Jeffrey Combs. It is uncommon to fire all six shots of a revolver with great suddenness when one would probably be sufficient. But many things in the life of Herbert West were uncommon. It is, for instance, not often that a young physician leaving college is obliged to conceal the principles which guide his selection of a home and office. Yet that was the case with Herbert West. When he and I obtained our degrees at the medical school of Miskatonic University and sought to relieve our poverty by setting up as general practitioners, we took great care not to say that we chose our house because it was fairly well isolated and as near as possible to the potter's field. Reticence such as this is seldom without cause, nor indeed was ours, for our requirements were those resulting from a life work distinctly unpopular. Outwardly, we were doctors only, but beneath the surface were aims of far greater and more terrible moments. For the essence of Herbert West's existence was a quest amid black and forbidden realms of the unknown in which he hoped to uncover the secret of life and restore to perpetual animation the graveyard's cold clay. Such a quest demands strange materials among them, fresh human bodies, and in order to keep supplied with these indispensable things, one must live quietly and not far from a place of informal internment. It was not easy to find a good opening for two doctors and company, but finally the influence of the university secured us a practice in Bolton, a factory town near Arkham. The Bolton Worsted Mills are the largest in the Miskatonic Valley, and their polyglot employees are never popular as patients with the local physicians. We chose our house with the greatest care, seizing at last a rather run-down cottage near the end of Pond Street, five numbers from the closest neighbor, and separated from the local potter's field by only a stretch of meadowland, bisected by a narrow neck of rather dense forest which lies to the north. The distance was greater than we wished, but we could get no nearer house without going on the other side of the field, wholly out of the factory district. We were not much displeased, however, since there were no people between us and our sinister source of supplies. The walk was a trifle long, but we could haul our silent specimens undisturbed. Our practice was surprisingly large from the very first large enough to please most young doctors and large enough to prove a bore and a burden to students whose real interest lay elsewhere. The mill hands were of somewhat turbulent inclinations, and besides their many natural needs, their frequent clashes and stabbing affrays gave us plenty to do. But what actually absorbed our minds was the secret laboratory that we had fitted up in the cellar. 
the laboratory with the long table under the electric lights were the small hours of the morning we often injected West's various solutions into the veins of the things that we dragged from the potter's field. The bodies had to be exceedingly fresh, or the slight decomposition of the brain tissue would render perfect reanimation impossible. Indeed, the greatest problem was to get them fresh enough. West had had terrible experiences during his secret college researches with corpses of doubtful vintage. West, though calm, often confessed to a shuddering sensation of stealthy pursuit. He had felt that he was followed. A psychological delusion of shaken nerves, enhanced by the undeniably disturbing fact that at least one of the reanimated specimens was still alive, a frightful carnivorous thing in a padded cell at Sefton. Then there was another, our first, whose exact fate we had never learned. We had fair luck with specimens in Bolton, much better than in Arkham. We had not been settled a week before we got an accident victim on the very night of burial and made it open its eyes with an amazingly rational expression before the solution failed. It had lost an arm. If it had been a perfect body, we might have succeeded better. Between then and the next January, we secured three more, one total failure, one case of marked muscular motion, and one rather shivery thing. It rose of itself and uttered a sound. Then came a period when luck was poor. Interments fell off, and those that did occur were of specimens either too diseased or too maimed for our use. We kept track of all the deaths and their circumstances with systematic care. One March night, however, we unexpectedly obtained a specimen which did not come from the potter's field. In Bolton, the prevailing spirit of Puritanism had outlawed the sport of boxing, with the usual result. Surreptitious and ill-conducted bouts among the mill workers were common, and occasionally professional talent of low grade was imported. This late winter night there had been such a match, evidently with disastrous results, since two timorous Poles had come to us with incoherently whispered entreaties to attend to a very secret and desperate case. We followed them to an abandoned barn, where the remnants of a crowd of frightened foreigners were watching a silent black form on the floor. The match had been between Kid O'Brien, a lubberly and now quaking youth, and Buck Robinson, the Harlem Smoke. The black man had been knocked out, and a moment's examination showed us that he would permanently remain so. Fear was upon the whole pitiful crowd, for they did not know what the law would exact of them if the affair were not hushed up. And they were very grateful when West, in spite of my involuntary shudders, offered to get rid of the thing quietly for a purpose I knew too well. There was bright moonlight over the snowless landscape, but we dressed the thing and carried it home between us through the deserted streets and meadows, as we had carried a similar thing one horrible night in Arkham. We approached the house from the field in the rear, took the specimen in the back door and down the cellar stairs, and prepared it for the usual experiment. Our fear of the police was absurdly great, though we had timed our trip to avoid the solitary patrolman of that section. The result was wearily anticlimactic. Ghastly as our prize appeared, 
It was wholly unresponsive to every solution we injected in its black arm. So as the hour grew dangerously near to dawn, we did as we had done with the others, dragged the thing across the meadow to the neck of the woods near the potter's field and buried it there in the best sort of grave that the frozen ground would furnish. The grave was not very deep, but fully as good as that of the previous specimen, the thing which had risen of itself and uttered a sound. In the light of our dark lanterns we carefully covered it with leaves and dead vines, fairly certain that the police would never find it in a forest so dim and dense. The next day I was increasingly apprehensive about the police, for a patient brought rumors of a suspected fight and death. West had still another source of worry, for he had been called in the afternoon to a case which ended very threateningly. An Italian woman had become hysterical over her missing child, a lad of five who had strayed off early in the morning and failed to appear for dinner, and she developed symptoms highly alarming in view of her always weak heart. It was a very foolish hysteria, for the boy had often run away before. But the woman seemed as much harassed by omens as by facts. About seven o'clock in the evening, she died, and her frantic husband had made a frightful scene in his efforts to kill West, whom he wildly blamed for not saving her life. Friends had held him when he drew a stiletto, but West had departed amidst his inhuman shrieks, curses, and oaths of vengeance. In his latest affliction, the fellow seemed to have forgotten his child, who was still missing as the night advanced. There was some talk of searching the woods, but most of the family's friends were busy with the dead woman and the screaming man. Altogether, the nervous strain upon West must have been tremendous thoughts of the police, and the mad Italian both weighed heavily. We retired about eleven, but I didn't sleep well. Bolton had a surprisingly good police force for so small a town, and I couldn't help fearing the mess which would ensue if the affair of the night before were ever tracked down. It might mean the end of all of our local work, and perhaps prison for both West and me. I did not like these rumors of a fight which were floating about. After the clock had struck three, the moon shone in my eyes, but I turned over without rising to pull down the shade. Then came the steady rattling at the back door. I lay still and somewhat dazed, but before long heard West's rap on my door. He was clad in a dressing gown and slippers, and had in his hand a revolver and an electric flashlight. From the revolver I knew that he was thinking more of the crazed Italian than of the police. We'd better both go, he whispered. It wouldn't do not to answer it, anyway, and it may be a patient. It would be like one of those fools to try the back door. So we both went down the stairs on tiptoe with a fear partly justified and partly that which comes only from the soul of the weird small hours. The rattling continued growing somewhat louder. When we reached the door, I cautiously unbolted it and threw it open and as the moon streamed revealingly down on the form silhouetted there, West did a peculiar thing. Despite the obvious danger of attracting notice and bringing down on our heads the dreaded police investigation, a thing which after all was mercifully averted by the relative isolation of our cottage, my friend 
suddenly, excitedly, and unnecessarily emptied all six chambers of his revolver into the nocturnal visitor. For that visitor was neither Italian nor policeman. Looming hideously against the spectral moon was a gigantic, misshaped thing not to be imagined save in nightmares. A glassy-eyed, ink-black apparition nearly on all fours, covered with bits of mold, leaves, and vines, foul with caked blood, and having between its glistening teeth a snow-white, terrible, cylindrical object terminating in a tiny hand. Well, that's all we got time for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. We got, uh, I think, one more thing from Frank, and uh, then we'll be signing off. So Happy New Year again. What do you got for us, Frank? This month, since it was Ethel Merman's birthday on the 16th, coincidentally, my mom's birthday, we're going to have a little song from Ethel Merman. This comes from Journey Back to Oz, an animated film, and this was a song that was cut out of the film, but it's my favorite. Oh, that sounds real fine. Well, this is Jimmy Sweets. This is Uncle Frank. This is Greg. See you next time. Don't be preoccupied with things on the happy side Cause laughter I simply can't abide Have no fear, your cheer will come to naught If you'll only keep a gloomy thought Think of darkness looming up ahead Think of every awful ending that you've ever read And you will be what you ought to be And almost as mean as me If you'll keep a hateful point of view Oh,